The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. As we are entering into this journey to peel back the layers of one of the greatest mysteries surrounding one of the most famous stories, the Nativity story, where we need to begin our journey is in the city of Rome. I want you to go with me in your mind to Rome. We're gonna go to the northern part of Rome to a house that is built on top of an ancient house belonging to a woman by the name of Priscilla. And there's an ancient house there in northern Rome that if we were to approach those gates um, called, there's a door, two green doors and over top, it will indicate that this is the house of Priscilla. Now in this house, there's some gardens. And there's a, a secret entrance that goes down into catacombs underneath Rome. They're carved into the soft uh, foundation bedrock of that region. And there are these long stone corridors. The ground is lined with stone. The walls and places are stone. Some of the walls are plaster, some are terracotta bricks, some are painted, there's some rooms set aside. And these tunnels are like a labyrinth, a maze of tunnels. They, scholars estimate that it may be some five miles worth of tunnels all underground under Rome. In fact, there are places that they go down a level and circle back underneath and go down another level. They go down in some places three stories down. And in every part of these tunnels, almost everywhere you look, these narrow stone tunnels are lined with these niches. And in each of these niches, there were places where bodies were buried. There's something kind of haunting about these corridors. And as you see all of these empty niches, you have this haunting feeling that there were bodies buried there and would still be there if it weren't for the fact that grave robbers had stolen them over the last 17, 1800 years. They estimate some 40,000 tombs are in these catacombs of Priscilla. And they're all ancient Christians. Priscilla was a wealthy estate owner, and she began, she dug underneath to have tomb, a tomb for her family, and uh, also made it available for generations of Christians that followed to continue digging these tunnels and, and at times even secretly burying their dead there in these tunnels. In these, this labyrinth, you'll see there's actually a couple spaces that are a little bit more open, and there's one in particular called the Greek Chapel. And they believe this is one of the oldest spaces in this, all of these catacombs, and it's all painted all around with Christian art. There are scenes from the Old and New Testament all painted around, and since this is one of the oldest places, they date this particular chapel to the 200s, that's the third century, and so that makes these paintings what many believe to be the oldest Christian art ever discovered the oldest Christian carvings 
and oldest Christian paintings ever discovered. And I want to draw your attention just over that archway, you'll see in that prominent spot, you'll see uh, one painting in particular. You see three figures approaching what looks like another figure. And I want to zoom in on that particular painting. What you see is these three figures all are carrying a gift. And they're approaching another figure, which it's faded, but you can barely make out it's someone seated. And you see in their arms is another smaller person. And what scholars realize what this is, is it's not just the oldest painting of the Magi. It's one of the oldest Christian paintings in the world. In other words... In this small little space they call a chapel where they have the oldest Christian art in the world. And they're picking out just the highlights from these various scenes from the Old and New Testament. This one scene put in one of the prominent spaces, this one scene of these wise men visiting from afar, visiting baby Jesus who's there in Mary's arms that made this particular scene one that captured their imagination and they wanted to paint it inside this. It's one of the oldest Christian paintings uh, known um, in antiquity. That story, the story of the wise men visiting baby Jesus, is a story that has captured the imagination for Christians throughout the millennia. It's really an unbelievable story Who are these guys? Where did they come from? Why did they come all this way? What were they looking for? And we have one text in Matthew chapter 2 that explains this one scene. And we have the Matthew chapter 2. We have that data. We have that book explaining the story. But over the centuries and millennia, so much legend has piled on top of that because It's a wonderful mystery even today. Probably somewhere in your house right now, you have some depiction of the wise men visiting baby Jesus somewhere because it's captured our imagination. What we want to do this Christmas and in this season is we want to peel back the layers of this mystery. And what we're going to do is we're going to to take what we know from the Bible about these wise men And we're going to look into the Bible and discover what does it say? Hey, is there a way we can figure out more about who they were? What were they looking for? How did they know to come? Where were they coming from? And as we peel back the layers of this mystery, I think we're going to find that there is a reason that this story was preserved for us for thousands of years. It's going to show us something about who Jesus is. and It's going to show us something about who, how he intersects with our lives And I think not only are we going to unwrap this mystery or pieces of this mystery, I think we're going to find our lives transformed in the process. So I want to invite you to go with me to, in the Bible, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm just going to simply read through this entire story. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's read the account of the wise men. Here's what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east 
came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Man, there's a lot in there and there's a lot that we know about these wise men, but there's a lot that we don't know. What are the things we know? Probably, let's start kind of collecting some of the pieces of data so we can try and piece these together. What's the most famous thing about the wise men? They followed a star. Somehow, for some reason, they looked up into the sky, they saw a star, and they followed it. So that's part of it. Like, think about all the questions you have about the star. I mean, what was this star? How does it rise? How does it disappear? How does it go before them and kind of just seem like it stops over Bethlehem? I mean, what's going on with this star? What did it look like? How did it, for some reason, indicate all these other pieces? We've got the star. We've got, um, we know a little bit about these wise men. At least what we do know is that they're from the east. Okay, this is another piece of our puzzle here. The wise men, they come from the east. Let's get that piece up there. They travel from the east and um, they come to, uh, to Jerusalem. For some reason, they knew that they were traveling, that they should go to the city of Jerusalem. There's a particular place that they were going to. And when they get to Jerusalem, they talk to the king there in Jerusalem, King Herod. Let's get him up here. We've got Herod. We've got Jerusalem. That's another piece of this puzzle. Wise men following a star east. When they come specifically, they're asking for something. They're looking for the king. For some reason, they know that a king has been born. How do they know this? Okay, like what's the detail that would lead them to believe that there's a king that's being born? How do they see a star and think king? Okay, not just, uh, they don't just come to see a king, but they have one of the most famous parts about them. They come with gifts. What are some of the gifts? Let's get this on the board here. They've got gold, okay? That seems to make sense, at least as far as treasures are concerned. But then they bring something else, frankincense, okay? We're a little less familiar with frankincense, but we can kind of figure out what frankincense is, some kind of incense, okay? And then they bring myrrh, okay? This one's a little bit more of a mystery. 
Why did they bring myrrh with them? Why was that, in their minds, an appropriate gift? Okay, that's part of the mystery. Okay, but then a couple other things. They ask, I don't know if you noticed this, they ask Herod, where's the king? Herod pulls together the scribes, which, by the way, you can already tell that they're not from that region, because if you know anything about Herod, you don't say, hey, where's the real king, Herod? It's not going to go over well, okay? People who even have a hint of, that are even a hint to a threat to any of the Herods, they wind up dead very quickly, even if you're a family member. Um, But they ask, where's the new king that was born? But I don't know if you noticed, what did Herod then say to the scribes and the chief priests and the priests? So he pulls together members of the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't say, hey, do you know anything about a new king? No, he says, where is the Christ to be born? Something more here going on. It's not just a king. Those in the conversation immediately know somehow it's not just a king, it's the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Now, who did Herod come up with that? Um, or did the, did the conversation with the wise men suggest not just a king, but a Christ, a Messiah? Well, we know that Herod's not a super godly guy, and we know that he's not super excited and waiting. He's not really waiting faithfully for the Messiah because when he finds out this king and about when he was born, he tries to kill him, remember? Kills all the babies, so we don't have Herod like, wait, you've heard the Messiah's coming? Great, that's not his posture. So who introduces the idea of Christ? And there's another interesting thing here that happens When they see this Jesus and they open up their treasures, it doesn't just say that they pay their respect. It says something else. They worship this guy. And really, Herod also kind of knows that there's some kind of worship going because he says, hey, when you find him, let me know. I'll worship him too. This is more than a king that they're paying homage to. This is someone that they're worshiping. Now, look, there's so many questions that we have here. Why do these guys... Why are they watching for a star? Like, why does that mean anything to the wise men? Where are they coming from in the east? And then why do they come to Jerusalem? I mean, if they're looking for a king, they could have gone anywhere. They could have gone to Alexandria. They could have gone to Antioch. They could have gone to Ephesus. Why not go to Rome? Wouldn't that make more sense? Like, if there's a star in the heavens, like, wouldn't you think that they would, if that's a new king, like, go to Rome? Like, why Jerusalem? Why are they come, where are they coming from? Who are these wise men? Why are they following a star? Why do they think a king is coming? Why are they going to Jerusalem? Where do all these things come from? And I think we start, need to start peeling back the layers of this mystery. Let's, go, let's start with, what do we know? Well, let's start with this. These wise men, we sometimes call them uh, kings. We call them the three kings. But what were they actually? Um, Matthew picks a very specific word to describe them. Now, just as a reminder, the Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew, and the New Testament, which is what we just read out of, is written out of ancient Greek. Matthew originally wrote this in Greek in the first century. Well, the word that he uses is where we get this word and sometimes refer to these wise men as magi. That comes from the Greek word that's right here in Matthew 2. They're not just intelligent men. This is a classification of individuals called magi. 
Now, who were these magi? Um, let's, let me read to you. Let's do some research here. What, what is a ancient magi? It's a classification uh, of individuals. This is what a magi is. Eastern wise men, priests, and astrologers, expert in interpreting dreams and other magic arts. They're persons adept in any of a number of secret arts, including dream interpretation, mediation of divine messages, astrology, fortune telling, magic, and divination. Divination may take many forms, such as hepatoscopy, the examination of the liver or other entrails of a sacrifice was supposed to give guidance. Okay, who are magi? They're a group of really sorcerers. They're not astronomers. This is way before Galileo and Copernicus. They're not men that are looking to the stars for scientific reasons. They're not astronomers. They're astrologers. They're sorcerers. For example, um, hepatoscopy. I don't know if you caught this. What they would do is they would be asked by a king, hey, should I go to battle? Like, should I go to war? Can you search the gods? Can you do some fortune telling, some soothsaying to tell me, should I go into battle? And so one of the common things that they would do is called hepatoscopy. They would take an animal sacrifice, like most often a sheep. They would kill the sheep. They would take the freshly dead, killed sheep body, cut it open, and pull out the liver. And depending on how the liver looked, that would determine an omen, whether good or bad. Yes, king, go to battle or don't go to battle. Um, in the ancient uh, times, uh, archaeologists have found what the ancients would use to train hepatoscopy. They have found in the east these clay livers. I think we have a, a picture of these clay livers. These would be used to train magi and sorcerers. Ones like this. This is, you can go see this in the museum in Britain. They would, they would use these clay livers to train them. This is what you're looking for in these livers. What is this? Witchcraft. This is as dark as it gets. I mean, I don't know if you know, like these are sorcerers. These are um, people who are looking at the heavens not to just study orbits. They're trying to determine signs and omens. Well, wait a minute, what are you saying? Are you saying that like, you know, the fact that like God deals with these people and brings them to baby Jesus? Are you saying like horoscope and fortune telling and tarot cards and black magic and, you know, rituals and seances are okay? Absolutely not. The Bible categorically denounces that as dark, wicked, and evil. Something that Christians and people who are followers of God, God's people, should stay away from. So then why is Matthew... Uh, making known, obviously, he's just recording this history. That's part of what's so striking that it is magi of all people that are coming to Jesus as this small child or this little baby. Okay, so 
Who are these people? Does Matthew give us any other indicator of who these are? Where are they coming from? Who are they? Well, remember, at the time when Matthew's writing this, the New Testament, he's actually writing Matthew, which will be part of the New Testament. The scriptures that they had up until this point is just the Old Testament, right? And I want you to hang with me here. This is going to get a little technical, but this is, I think, a key part of our mystery. The Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew, but at the time of Jesus, at the time when Matthew's writing, there was a common translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. And so many of the people in Matthew's day and Jesus' day were reading from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that Greek translation is called the Septuagint. So we can take Magi, we can take the Greek word for Magi, which is magos, or magoi would be the plural. We can put this up. We're going to look for this word in the, old, in the Greek Old Testament. Is Matthew trying to draw our attention? Do magi ever appear in the Old Testament? Like, do they ever appear specifically this Greek word? Does this ever appear in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament? And you know what's interesting? It does in only one book of the Old Testament. Ten times in one cluster, the book of Daniel. In Daniel, you find the Greek word for magoi or magos, you find it ten times in four different chapters in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5. You have this tight cluster. Matthew knows that many of his readers, he often quotes in Matthew from the Greek translation, not just the Hebrew. He knows that many of his readers have a familiarity, and if they're trying to figure out who is this group, it would draw their attention to, oh yeah, there's a story in Daniel about these wise men, these magi, these magoi, magos, in the book of Daniel that appear in there. And the story of Daniel, by the way, written by this guy named Daniel, the story of Daniel, um, and they were uh, astrologers, so the story of Daniel spans two different empires. The first half is Babylon, and the second half is about Persia, but the Magi is almost always associated with Babylon. In those chapters that are dealing with Babylon... We've got the Magi. So specifically, that's Babylon. This guy here, that is a, a relief carving of Nebuchadnezzar that archaeologists have found. And so this really gives us... I'm out of pens. I lost a pen. I need one more pen here. What happened there? This really gives us then a really good possibility here that these men are from Babylon. Okay. Let's, uh, let's start pulling this together. Let's try and tie some of these loose ends together. So I'm going to grab some string here. Okay, start with our wise men. Who do we have? We've got wise men. We know who they are. They're magi, okay? We know what that Greek word here is magoi, okay? That is from Daniel. Chapters 1, 4, and 5. That gives us a strong suspicion, especially because these are associated 
with, um, since they're associated with Babylon, very likely from Babylon, which is interesting. And that connects with the star because we know that the Magoi of Babylon were astrologers. We know that historically, archeologically, they would look at the heavens. So that makes sense with these Magoi, okay? That also then helps us understand that why they were coming from the east. Babylon is east uh, of Jerusalem where they came from. They came to Jerusalem. We don't 100% know why they chose to come to Jerusalem yet and why they talked to Herod. Okay, now this gives us a starting place. Wise men, magi, that's who they were, not kings. Magi coming from the east, probably Babylon. They would follow the star. They, they were astronomers. They looked to the heavens and they're covered in Daniel 1, 2, 4, and 5. Now, here's the interesting thing here for us to dig in. We're going to pause there. There's so many other questions. Why, why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? How did they know to look for a king? Why did they think the king was in Jerusalem? Okay. Why did they think it was a Christ figure, a messianic figure? Why were these guys from the east, why did they care about a Jewish messiah? Who cares? They live way far away, probably in Babylon, maybe Persia. And why when they saw him, they didn't just pay homage, why did they worship him? We've got so many other things that we're gonna begin breaking down through this series and see if we can dig in and figure out the answers to those questions. But before we go any further, here's where we're gonna pause for the day. This gives us a really, really big clue. Because these guys... If they're from Babylon, and Matthew's hinting for us to think about Daniel, that gives us something we need to dig into. Let's start with this. What was Daniel in particular, what was his relationship with these magicians? Let's go to the book of Daniel. Let me show you a couple things. Let's start in Daniel chapter 1, verse 19. This is this this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the, what's the word there? Magicians. What do you think? In the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew, what do you think is the word there? Magi. Daniel and his his, um, friends were Jewish men that had been brought in from Jerusalem when Babylon had conquered and knocked down the, the walls, destroyed the temple, and dragged them out of Jerusalem over to Babylon. Daniel and his friends, those are their Hebrew names. They end up getting called Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in Babylon. And what are they trained to become? Magi. In fact, what it says earlier in Daniel chapter 1 is that they are trained in every way of the Babylonians. In other words, they take them from Jerusalem over to Babylon, and they don't say, hey, how do you discern God's will? They say, no, we're going to assimilate you into Babylonian culture. We're going to teach you the way of Babylonian culture. So in other words, 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what school did they go to? Sorcery school. They took hepatoscopy class. Here are these Jewish boys. They find themselves in Babylon, and all of a sudden they're being trained to be sorcerers. And you see throughout this entire book of Daniel how they try to navigate honoring God and being present where God puts them, but trying to faithfully not practice things in a way that dishonors God. And they try and navigate this around and keeping God as their God. And yet, they, have, they are forced into an environment that's really dark, being taught hepatoscopy in their classes. Daniel was a magi. But he wasn't just a magi. Let's go over a couple chapters. As the Lord, the Spirit is on him, let's go over to Daniel chapter 4, verse 9. Um, this, again, is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. What does he say? O Belteshazzar, again, that's Daniel. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dreams that I saw and their interpretations." Daniel, because the spirit of God is on him, he's not just been trained as a magi, he becomes the chief magi. Daniel was a magi, the chief magi, and um, as you may know, he's around even after Nebuchadnezzar goes insane. He's around while Nebuchadnezzar goes insane. He's around when Nebuchadnezzar's son is now reigning. He's there when his son uh, is dishonoring the pieces that they got from the temple. And Daniel comes in and warns them, hey, before the night is out, you're going to be conquered. He's there, witnesses the moment when Persia comes in. An incredible historic moment when the world power shifts from Babylon to Persia. He's there, and he actually not only serves under the Babylonian king, he serves under the Persian king as well, and once again rises to prominence. And what happens here? Let me read you one more text. This is again where the, the word magi appears in the ancient Greek of the Old Testament. This is Daniel chapter 5, verse 11. This is the queen speaking to Nebuchadnezzar's son. Here's what she says. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Who is Daniel? A magi? A chief of magi? a legendary magi who records in his book some of the most incredible things that happened in that day. His friends get thrown into a fiery furnace and survive. So um, shocked were the, Bab the Babylonian king that he sent messages all throughout the known world to tell the story. He has um, a, a moment where he can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream even though... Um, even though Nebuchadnezzar won't tell them what the dream was, and yet he interprets it. And once again, they're shocked. And once again, when Nebuchadnezzar tries to defy that dream, and there's consequences to that, they send messages to the known world. Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den and survives, now under Persian rule. Once again, I mean, he's not just a magi, a chief of magi, he's a legendary magi. 
and he leaves this book of Daniel. And so this answers, this starts to give us a place where we can start digging in and getting some background to answer some of our question. These magoi, these magi, they come from the east in search of a king, of a Christ. They know to go to Jerusalem and they bring these gifts and they know to worship him. What did they have to help explain why they should do all those things? Well, they very likely had the book of Daniel. And over the course of this series, we're going to dig into the book of Daniel and find out what did they have and why did they come and what does that mean for us? But here's where I want to pause just for a second for today. This is where I want to land on today. I want you to think about who it was that God took all that effort to get over to baby Jesus. I mean, do you see God's long game here? Has Daniel... I think about how much he, how badly God wanted these guys there. 500 years before this, as Daniel writing down in a book, mysterious prophetic writings, the future very generations of Magi very well may have been digging in and putting pieces together. That's a long game. That means that the fruit of Daniel's life went far beyond what he could have imagined. Things that God had Daniel did, do didn't matter for 500 years in some, in some cases. And it drew these men from so far all the way over here. And, and think about this. I want you to not only think of like just God's long game, but I want you to think about who he brought I mean, men trained in dark arts, sorcerers, can you think of anyone that would be more at enmity to the holy presence sacred appearing incarnate of holy God, Jesus Christ? And he brings the darkest of the dark not only does he bring the darks of the dark, he brings them from a kingdom. I mean, Babylon is like the archetypal wicked city. They're like the ultimate enemy of Jerusalem, right? They're the city in the Old Testament that tears down Jerusalem, destroys the temple, drags God's people out of the promised land. I mean, they are like the quintessential bad guys. They, they are used paradigmatically, they're used like to represent wickedness in Revelation. I mean, they are like the representation of evil. And he takes these dark sorcerers from this dark, wicked city, and he's preparing for 500 years to go to great length to get these to bend the knee before the Messiah. What does this tell you about God? What does it tell you that he brings these and embeds that in the Christmas story, kind of a first fruits of what this child is going to accomplish? He wanted to give us for all time a picture for every Christian to look back at this moment and know something about the nature of God.
And I think it's this. There is no one that is outside of the reach of Almighty God. There's no one too far. There's no one too closed. There's no one too wicked. There's no one too dark. There's no one outside of the reach too far, outside of the reach of the message of the gospel. There is no one too far that they're outside of the reach of God. So here's what I want us to think about, church. Over the last month or so, we have been talking about how every single place that each of us have been placed by God, our neighborhoods, our friend group, our workplaces, the families that we've been placed, we've been talking over the last several weeks that we've been placed in those locations by God as a missionary to those spaces. And you know, many times Christians, a lot of times we feel like, look, I, I'm trying, but you don't know how dark the place I work is. I'm doing my best to be present but not participate. I'm doing my best to, be, to work hard and be faithful, and, but you don't know, I mean, like the crookedness and like the, the, the filth, and you don't know the conversation. You don't know what the people are into, and you don't know the things I get invited to. You don't know what the Christmas party is going to be like that I'm going to get invited to for work this, this year. I mean, I'm surrounded. It is a dark place where I work. It is, it's a dark place, the people who live around me in my neighborhood. This, man, the family that I'm a part of, they are so far from God and even when we get together it just feels like man they're not even close and sometimes by the, the, the people that I'm surrounded by the place that I work sometimes I wonder man this is so dark I mean is this even a place a Christian should be like maybe the best thing that I'm supposed to do as a Christian is to just get myself out of this workplace get myself out uh, of, of these people away from this friend group maybe I'm not supposed to be surrounded by such darkness but here's what we learned from this story. I mean, if God is going to place young Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's palace and in, in, in hepatoscopy class, and they're gonna do their absolute best to say, God, we're present here, we're gonna be faithful, we're gonna be a light in the darkness. Lord, show us how to be faithful present here. And what does it say? I mean, even the people around them couldn't deny Man, God is with them. You can't be a light unless you're in the darkness. Don't give up, Christian. Don't despair. If you've been placed in that, the place that you're at, you're there to shine a light. Last week, we uh, were challenged by Pastor Justin, and he told us, that one of the most important things we could do in this season is to those that are all around us to simply say, just come and see. And maybe they come and see, maybe we pray for them. Maybe we stop and take a risk and say, hey, I know you're going through that. Can I pray for you? Boy, that takes some courage, right? But maybe you, you but let them enter into, okay, Lord, are you gonna answer this prayer or not? Maybe you step in and pray. Maybe you invite them in. Yeah, but what am I potentially inviting them into my house? Well, you're being a light. 
And as you invite them in, you're saying, hey, just come and see. Maybe you're inviting them into the Christmas services. Because you know what? If, if they don't know Jesus, they just need to experience Jesus. And there's no more potent place that we all together experience Jesus than when we come together and all the gifts of the body of Christ are working together. That's why this is such a powerful moment for us together to experience Jesus. So how important is it to invite in? And as you're thinking about who are those people on my heart this season that I'm going to say, hey, come and see as you're thinking about who those are, sometimes Christians, what we do is we go around and we think about who are those people who are close? Who are those people that I think will be receptive? But what we learn from this is there's no one too far gone. So the real question is, who's right in front of me? Who have you put on my heart, God? Who are you calling me to take a risk and say, okay, this person's always antagonistic to my faith. This person is always, man, kind of pushing against me. This person's always asking me tough questions, but that's a person I'm just going to faithfully say, hey, come and see, because Christian, so often the person who's the most antagonistic, the family member that's most antagonistic to your faith is often the person that's really wrestling with their faith. And the reason they're pushing against is because there's something that's beginning to stir. And so Christian, be brave, take courage, and go and find that person, whoever it is that God's put right in your place. Take courage, invite them in, and just simply say, come and see. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a second right now. And I just want you to, who are the names that he's beginning, the Holy Spirit is beginning to surface in your mind? Who are the friends? the coworkers, the neighbors, the family members. They might not even need to be local. Maybe it's someone you can invite to watch digitally. Maybe it's someone that you forward on a worship service and say, hey, just check this out. Maybe it's someone that you just simply invite in in some capacity and simply say, come and see why. Because right there when it all began, God showed us for generations that he intends to bring the farthest of the far the deepest, darkest enemies of God, he intends to bring them to their knees before the Savior. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of their journey. But you know, maybe you're here, and maybe you've already been invited in. Maybe you were invited to church today, and you have a lot of questions uh, about God and about Jesus. Maybe you're invited here to the West Pines campus or the Cooper City campus or you're watching online or someone forwarded this message to you and you're watching this and you say, yeah, I, I do have a lot of questions. I don't know what I believe. And you say, I, I, I feel like I'm far. I don't have my life cleaned up. I'm, I'm not a church person. I, I'm not like a Christian. And that's, in your mind, that's what a church person or Christian is, is someone who's got their life cleaned up. I feel like someone who's, man, I, I've said things about God. I've done things in my past I'm ashamed of. I'm pretty sure God's mad at me or doesn't want me. I feel like I'm too far gone. I don't know how hard I'm going to have to work to be forgiven, but I have a long way to go before I'm willing to believe that God would be willing to love me, bless me, forgive me. I've got a lot of work to do. I've got a lot of years to build up before I think that God's going to let me into heaven. But if that's what you think, you're missing the story. All you have to do is come and bow the knee before Jesus. Because this Jesus, his whole purpose in coming 
is to save every one of us who are so far from God, we didn't have a chance without Jesus being our savior. He died on the cross and that pays for our sins. And he rose again from the dead, offering forgiveness. And if you simply choose to come before Jesus and make him your God and your king and bend the knee before Jesus, forgiveness is offered to you as a free gift of salvation. And if that's you, I want, you to, I want to invite you to find and discover Jesus today and begin a journey of your own in following Jesus as your king. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If that's you and you say, look, I would have thought that God wanted nothing to do with me, but if you're saying that he'll forgive me, if you're saying he'll wipe away all my sins, if you're saying that I can have a relationship with the one who made me and the one who loves me, if you're saying I could, I could be forgiven today, if you're saying that I can find and know that, that heaven is a guarantee, not just a wish, if you're saying I can know that for, for sure today, then I'm in, just tell me what to do. I want to bring you to that decision point. Is that you? Do you want to make that decision today? Here's what I want you to do. With every heads bowed and all eyes closed, the wise men traveled across Arabia to get to Jesus. But he's come to you today. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus today, then I want to ask you to do something bold. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand whether you're here at the West Pines campus, maybe you're there in Cooper City, or you're watching, even if you're watching online, because it's mainly between you and God, and I want that physical moment for you to remember. If you want to find salvation today, I'm going to lead you in that prayer. You can walk out of here knowing for sure you're forgiven, knowing for sure that heaven is a guarantee. And it's like you're born again into a new relationship with God. So if that's you, no one's looking around. This is between you and God. Would you just slip your hand in the air? If you want to put your faith in Jesus, slip your hand in the air, whether you're here, whether you're at Cooper City. Amen. Praise God. Anybody else, you say, today's the day. I, I've had questions, but I'm surrendering to the person of Jesus. I'm making him my Savior and Lord. Just slip your hand in the air. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these who are coming to you and worship those here. Others that are watching online or at Cooper City who are making this decision in their heart, thank you for what they're doing. If that's you, I'm gonna lead you in this prayer. Silently say this to God. Say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to be my savior. I wanna be forgiven and I'll follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, there were people who put their faith in Jesus for the first time today. Can we just celebrate that together? Amen. Praise God. Their eternity is changed. If that's you, 
Your eternity is transformed. And so we want to celebrate with you. If you're watching online, go to cityrev.org faith. You can click that right there on the screen. If you're here and that was you, do me a favor. Can you let us know on this Get Connected card? Just say, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. And then put that in one of the giving boxes. Or even better, just take it in that front lobby to that desk for guests. It's right there in that front lobby. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands. If you go to cityrev.org faith, we will mail you a Bible so you can begin this journey with your Savior. Church, we're going to close in worship, and we're going to sing out some words that were written 700 years before the time of Jesus. They were written 700 years before Jesus was born, all preparing the way for our Savior, and we're going to join those generations that were looking forward to the Messiah and now looking back to that Messiah. Let's stand and sing and declare those ancient words together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.